0: Well, good morning again. Um, So for some reason, we decided to do, well, I decided to do my little furniture painting projects in my bedroom. Uh, You know, watch a little bit of TV, put a mat down and go to it. But you know what the greatest danger to this is? When you reach a certain age, there are certain breaks that happen in the middle of the night when you're half asleep and so you're just placing landmines between you and the bathroom, right? That's that's how this furniture project goes. So you wake up half asleep and you stumble through a dark bedroom because you know you don't want to wake people up, right? And you have to avoid the drawers and you have to avoid the hardware and you have to avoid the little screws that go to the hardware. It's dangerous business, right? And Amy warns me every single time, you know you're going to step on that, you know you're going to hit it, and you know what? Like three out of four times I do. Step on it, hit it, try to restrain, you know, any obscene words coming out of my mouth and not wake, you know, Amy up in the process. But there's just something about darkness, right? It disorients you. I have lived in this home for seven years, almost seven years. I can I should be able to wander around it in the dark. I've lived in this better. I painted this thing. I sat in front of it for an hour. I should be able to navigate. But there's something about darkness that disorients us. So when Jesus says the world is in darkness, he's saying the world is filled with obstacles. The world is disoriented. The world is evil. The world is filled with landmines that you're going to run into. And there is nothing other than kind of the half light because Jesus is in the world and there's a common grace. world. there's nothing but a half light to navigate the world through. And that is all of the humanity, you know. Is they are sleepwalking through a dark world with no orientation to reality. Going from object to object to hold on to. To think, you know what, if, if I can just hold on to this, it'll be stable. If I can just hold on to this, I won't run into anything too dangerous. And that's how they're living their lives. Until the light gets flipped on. And when the light gets flipped on, it's dazzling. It's blinding when you've been in the dark that long. And it shows you everything. And that's what we're offering to the world is to flip the light on and it will dazzle them to see it. So I think that's like that's the way the world is. It's in darkness. But how often do we as Christians turn the lights out and go back into darkness? That's the analogy. I think he's using in the text. How how often do we we know the light of the world? He's flipped on the light switch. We see the world. We see God more importantly. All right. You know what? Let me flip the light on and wander around in the darkness apart from Jesus for a little while. And we drift from him and we neglect him and we distance from him. And usually it takes us running big toe right into a drawer to get our attention back to say, oh, Jesus, I've walked from you. Why am I wandering around in the dark when you've turned the lights on? And so let's uh, go into John chapter eight, John chapter eight, verses um, Twelve through through 30 is where we'll be. And so in chapter six, kind of we're leading up to this moment in chapter six, Jesus feeds the five thousand. And then he uses that as a backdrop to say, I am the better bread. I am the bread that gives eternal life. I am the bread that gives eternal satisfaction. Feast on me. And then we turn into to chapter seven, which we've been in off and on for the past few weeks. And in chapter seven, G, the, the clear declaration is Jesus is the Christ. It is the it is the question mark of people. It is the measuring stick of people. It is the statement of Jesus. This is the Christ. And the Christ is on the father's agenda and Jesus, the Christ is on the father's timeline. And he's 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 about the father's business. And that runs collision course with the world and the world hates him and the world wants to arrest him and the world wants to kill him. The world wants to silence him. But he's about the father's business. He's on the father's timeline and the world can't touch him. Not till the father says they can touch him. And that's the collision course of John chapter seven. And so they reject him and they they hate him and they and they want to be done with him. And as they hate him and as they reject him and as they want to be done with him, you know, what he says to them? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Come and drink from me. If you believe I will put in your heart rivers of living water an, uh, an ins- unsatiable thirst that will be met by an unquenched river that never stops satisfying your thirst. And so to his opponents, he's like, come and drink. It's free. Come and drink. You'll be satisfied. So if you're thirsty, come. If you will believe, come. And then that leads into to today in chapter 8, verse 12. I believe he's continuing the same conversation. Don't worry, we'll get to the, the, the part we're missing. But I believe he's continuing the same conversation. It says again. To the same backdrop of, a, of the Feast of the Booths that that commemorate the wilderness wandering or the feast of the harvest that commemorates the provision of God gathering in the harvest that will supply their needs and ultimately points forward to the to the age of Messiah when the Spirit will be poured out and people will be gathered into the Father's house. And against that backdrop he will continue and he'll say again and he'll make the big headline claim I am the light of the world. The second I am statement that Jesus makes in the book of John, I am the light of the world in a dark world. Light illuminates in an evil world. Light exposes in a lost world. Light shows the path to salvation. I am the light of the world. And light is such a rich imagery throughout the Bible that we'll get into some of not all of it today. So you may be uh, not caring. Or you may wonder, why did we not do chapter 8, verses 1 through 11? We will. Don't worry. But there are some wrinkles and some challenges, to, and your, your Bible probably notes it already. There are some wrinkles and some challenges to John chapter 8, 1 through 11. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue the flow of thought of Jesus interacting with his opponents Uh, And then once we finish chapter eight, we will come back to one through 11 and we will cover it with wrinkles, challenges and with all of the the details of it. A a really beautiful story, really powerful story. So we will come back to it. Don't worry. Um, But we're going to just continue the flow of Jesus's thought before we do. Um, That said, let's read uh, chapter eight, verses 12 through 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh and I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me in your law. It is written that the testimony of two people is true, and I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where you're where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Now, they did not understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. So, Father, would you turn the lights on in our hearts? For those who are lost and apart from Christ, would you turn the light of Christ on? Would you rip away the veil that blinds them, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they wouldn't see the the glory of God in the face of Christ? God, would you turn on the light? And, Father, for those of us who are yours, those of us who know Jesus As we drift, would you turn the lights back on so that we can see the beauty and the glory of Jesus? God, as we play with our sin and are trapped by our sin, would you turn the light of Jesus back on so that we'd be repulsed by it? God, would you draw us to yourself and father for those that we're currently seeing and beholding the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed From one degree of glory to the next. God would you make the light brighter. That our love might be hotter. And our following might be more intimate. And we might run more after him. See more of him. God we pray that in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, So follow Jesus. The guiding and saving light of the world. Follow Jesus. The guiding and saving light of the world. First he is a witness who speaks. And judges in truth. He is a witness who speaks and judges in truth. Um, I imagine that all of you have people like this in your life where they'll come to you with news and information and 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 you just don't give a lot of weight to what they say for some reason or another. So maybe it's one of the kind of people that come and they're like super overly dramatic about everything. Or are they the kind like this is the biggest deal in the world? This is the biggest deal in the world. Come listen, listen. You got to get upset with me because I'm upset and everything since it's the biggest thing. Right. Do you have any of those people in your life? You're not those people, are you? But, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? And so it's like you, you hopefully have learned like when people like everything's the end of the world, then you realize like this is somebody like I don't need to get sucked into everything being the end of the world. And, and so I'll just take what they say with a grain of salt. And if it is the end of the world, like we'll figure it out then. Right. Or maybe they're people like you, you've just caught them kind of stretching the truth a little bit or exaggerating a little bit. Or maybe they're a little more inclined to being gossipy. And so you're like, you know, what, I'm, I'm going to just I'm not going to put a ton of weight on what they say. Um, but I hope you also have another group of people in your life. I hope there's a group of people when they come to you because of the way they conduct themselves and the way they live their lives and the trust that is built between you and and that they seem to be pretty level headed and the wisdom of God kind of influences who they are. And so when they come to you and say something or they come to you and give you information like there's a weight to it. Like you trust it. And if they're pretty worked up, you're like, oh, there must be a reason to be worked up. Or if they're saying this is a big deal, then you're like, yeah, that's probably then a big deal. Because you have a bank of experience and the way they carry themselves leads you to put trust in them. I'm sure you're not shocked to find out that Jesus is the latter kind. Jesus carries himself and and Jesus has the wisdom of the father and the, the way Jesus lives his life. Puts a authority on what he says and puts a just a veracity, a truthfulness on what he says. And when he says something, it should be given a lot of weight. One, because God's saying something. But two, the way he's conducted himself adds weight to it. And so when the opponents hear Jesus, they want to attack him. They want to tear down his credibility. But we're like, no, this is a true witness. Witness. And if Jesus has rescued you and if Jesus has saved you, I hope that he's increasingly making you the kind of person with the wisdom and, and the way you carry yourself to where you are the kind of person that can be trusted. You're the kind of person with integrity. You're the kind of person that, that levels the head out a little bit and, and, and gives a proper weight to the things going on in, in your life around you. Because that's something the gospel does. It aligns us with Jesus, who is a true witness and he speaks and judges in truth. So as we get into the text, like as you're reading through it, I hope you notice there's a couple of of words that just get repeated a lot. True or truth. You know, witness. Judgment, judge. And so Jesus is going to make this really huge claim that we're going to get to. And then there's this immediate attack on his credibility. There's an immediate dismissal of what he has to say. And so the text is about witnesses showing the truthfulness of what is being said, witnesses that support the claim or the opponent saying there aren't enough witnesses for us to believe your claim. And that's the collision of the text. I'm the light of the world. No, you're a liar. No, I tell the truth and I see with the same eyes as the father sees and I speak with the same voice that the father speaks. And that's what's set before you. What is true and what is false? What does the what side does the weight of the witnesses line up on? All right. So as we we jump in, he starts out, and he says, I am the light of the world. And in John, we've mentioned before, but you've slept since then. So we will remind you there are seven. I am statements in the book of John seven being the number of completion um, and I am statements done by John very intentionally to show us that Jesus is God, to show us that Jesus is the son of God. And so the background of I am is just I am is taken from and connected to the Old Testament name Yahweh. And so the Old Testament name Yahweh, the covenant making God, the covenant keeping God. And so when God is talking to his people as their God and there is people, he's talking to them as the covenant God and he will use the name Yahweh. And so just just to give you an example, in Genesis one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God there is the word for the powerful God, the God who who um, creates the God who has, you know, just this unimaginable power. But in chapter two, he's not dealing with the creation out of nothing. He's dealing with the forming of man and the forming of woman. And that is a very intimate encounter encounter and a very intimate chapter. And so the name used in Genesis chapter two isn't God. Most high, strong, powerful creator God. The name for, in Genesis chapter 2 is Yahweh. Covenant God. The God of relationship. And, uh, when, when God comes to Moses and he's, and Moses is like, who am I gonna, you know, they're gonna ask me who sent me and who, what am I gonna tell these people? Like, they haven't, they hadn't heard from you in a long time. He's gonna tell them, tell them I am sent you. And so throughout the Old Testament, this name Yahweh, this idea of I am the self-existent, independent, covenant-making God is throughout the Old Testament. And then what you find throughout the Old Testament is he will add uh, attributes to his name when he has personal encounters with people that give a bigger picture of who he is. And so one, uh, one of the more famous ones, right, is Yahweh Jireh or Jehovah Jireh, like the God who provides. He meets with Hagar in the wilderness Nobody can see her. Nobody knows what's going on in her life. She's ready to just put her child out of earshot and die. And then God comes to her and says, Yahweh, I'm the God who sees what's going on. Right. And so throughout the Old Testament, God's personal encounters reveal his name plus these attributes. And so I don't think it's any accident in John. He's tying a direct string to that God when he says, I am The light of the world. I am the bread of life. Yahweh, light of the world. Yahweh, bread of life. Yahweh, the good shepherd. And John's very intentionally doing this for you and for me to draw the connection. This is God, and he is not hiding his claim to be God. So I am the light of the world. And so the backdrop here at the Feast of Booths is there's this big candle lighting ceremony. And so each night, these massive lampstands in the temple courtyard would be lit uh, as part of the celebration of this feast for seven nights. And as weird as it is, there would be devout men who would be given torches and they would dance around all night long with torches. And so the light coming out of the temple would wash over Jerusalem every night of this festival And it's against that backdrop that Jesus says, I am Yahweh. Not the light of Jerusalem that washes over the city, but the light of the world that washes over the world. I am the light of the world who will illuminate God because you don't know God. But I come from the bosom of the father and I'm going to make him known. I am the light of the world, the one who offers salvation to mankind. I'm the light of the world who will expose the darkness and the sinfulness of mankind in hopes of repentance, but if not, in the the judgment that will come to them. And so what is he saying against this backdrop? I am the light of the world. Y'all out there today? Okay, just a second. All right. All right. And so a couple other imageries for light um, in, in the beginning of John, it's life giving light. Right. In him was life. And that life was the light of men and the light shined in the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. In first, John, light has the idea of righteousness and purity. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Right. And so it has the idea of righteousness and moral purity shining against the unrighteousness and the impurity of the world. Right. And um, a couple other verses. Let me read a few for you in uh, Isaiah forty nine. Thankfully, Wade, you know, stopped a few chapters short, didn't steal the thunder. Right. Got, uh, but it's the freaking image imagery of Messiah. Isaiah forty nine six says God says it is too light a thing that I sh- that, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. What is the image of light? It is the image of salvation. And, and if you think about it, like, I'm going to send my son to the earth. I'm going to kill my son on a cross. And you think it's enough for me to give him 12 tribes of Israel, this little bitty people group that's like barely existent, you know, except for that I preserve them. And like, that's enough? No. That is way too small an inheritance for the work of Jesus Christ. Like, it's way too small an inheritance for the for for sending my son, eternal God, to the earth. I'm going to make him a light for the nations. And so the imagery of light is my salvation, washing not over Jerusalem, but washing over the world that people would see him, believe in him, and have life in him. It's also the idea of deliverance. Psalm 56, 13, you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before you, before God in the light of of life. And so the imagery of salvation, the imagery of righteousness, the imagery of deliverance, the imagery of guidance and, and illuminating, the imagery of exposing, like all of these are wrapped into this idea of light. I am the light of the world. But there's one more image that all of this pictures. Like right? the background of the feast, wandering around in the wilderness, the background of the first, last few chapters of John, Moses in the wilderness. So there's one more light we've got to point out. Let me get the text right. Exodus 13. So they're roaming around out of Egypt and then they're roaming around the desert for 40 years. How do they know where to go? By day, I will lead them by a pillar of cloud and at night by a pillar of fire and it will not depart from them. And so if God's people needed to travel by night. Then they would travel by this pillar of fire that represented the presence of God among his people. And it would light the way for them to follow in the treacherous mountainous dark or, or treacherous deserted places. Like we can follow this pillar of fire and we can get where God wants us to go. And that's how God led his people throughout those years. And that's the backdrop, because look at the next part of the verse. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. And so against this backdrop of Moses and the people in the wilderness and God leading his people by fire comes this imagery of I'm the light of the world who will wash out or shine salvation all over the world. I'm the light of the world. And if you will follow me, you will walk in the path that is bright, not dark. And it's the path that leads to life, not a path that leads to death. And so I think what it's saying for us, like you think about it, if we're following God, there's all, or if the Israelites were following God, there was always light. What if they said, no, nah, I'm going to just hang out here a while. And the light will get further and further and further, and the darkness will crouch in over and over and over. But as long as they stayed following God, as long as they stayed following the Father, as long as they stayed in the presence of God, there was light for the path. It didn't make the path easy, no. Like if you've been to Israel, like there's no such thing as easy paths out in the wilderness around there. It is rocky, mountainous, or it's desert. It's terrible stuff. And like they didn't have, they didn't have roads and all that for. Them. And so did it make the path easy to stay near to God? No. Did it make the path well lit? Yes. And so what I would say to you today is if you want light for the path ahead of you, then it will require you staying near to Jesus, intimate with Jesus, following Jesus, running after Jesus. And if you say, No, I'm going to just stop here, that's enough. I've put in my time, that's enough. You know what? It's gotten a little too hard. Let me sit a while. And we allow our relationship with Jesus to distance, we allow our, allow our relationship with Jesus to coast. And you've probably found this to be true in your life before, and you find that it gets dimmer and dimmer. And dimmer and dimmer as the light continues But we stay still Jesus is the light of the world And if you'll follow him Not if you'll sit still and watch him walk If you'll follow him You will not walk in darkness You'll walk in the light That lights the path That leads to real abundant full life But if you distance yourself it's not going to be life you experience. It's not going to be better. It is not going to be better that you experience. It's going to be darkness. It's going to be death. So I am the light of the world who follow, whoever follows me walks in or whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. will have the light of life. And then the opponents jump in and like Jesus has made this really amazing statement, right? These little torches are nothing compared to what I'm going to do to light up the world. And his opponents, like, don't even don't even take a breath. You're talking about yourself. You're not true. And so as soon as he makes this statement, like you're just bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You're lying. Funny thing is, is they're quoting Jesus' own words. If you look at John chapter five, do you know, the devil can quote the Bible better than you. Doesn't make him true. Doesn't make him somebody you should listen to. But he can quote the Bible and that's what they're doing. Like, Jesus, you just said, if you bear witness about yourself, it's not true. And so what does Jesus say? Well, even if I do bear witness about myself, it's true because I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. What's he saying? Like, I know my own backstory. I know my origin. I've lived eternally my the experience of God because I'm God. I know where I come from. I have full awareness of who I am. And so, like. It's not a lie, but I also know where I'm going. I know my destination and you don't know either of those two things like you're not true. Wait, wait, even if I am saying it by myself, I, I'm true. So so when he said that in John chapter five, which we hit there, he's not saying like, OK, if I bear witness about myself it's a lie, what he's saying is my claims are so astounding. My claims are so amazing That they require supporting witnesses and authenticating evidence because they're that grand. And so he is making this huge statement. I am the light of salvation and and guidance for the whole world. And that requires some supporting evidence. And so in John chapter 5, there's like four or five witnesses here. There's two. And he's like, yeah, I and the father are saying the same thing. And then he says, like, you judge according to the flesh. So when you look at me, all you can see is what your natural eyes show you. And so when he says you judge according to the flesh, I think like it might help us throughout the rest of this little section to say you assess. So like that's in the range of meanings of the word judge. And I think that's what's being used here. And so you assess according to the flesh, meaning you look at me, you evaluate me, you assess me from a purely natural mindset. So you judge according to the flesh. Which means you can only come up with a flesh outcome and a flesh explanation for me and a natural point of view about me. And I step back and I look at Christianity in America. And I think how many people who label themselves Christians cannot see beyond a natural view of Jesus. Jesus just needs to be a little more relevant. Jesus is on the wrong side of history. If Jesus were walking around today, he would view some of our cultural issues differently if he had our perspective on it. Think about that. The sovereign God of the universe, who framed the, wor- the world by his words, who knows all things, past, present, and future, and from a natural mentality, we think we can go and twist what he said and turn it into like if he were here, it would be different, he would say it differently. And I think he would go to Christian after Christian and blogger after blogger and writer after writer and songwriter after songwriter and say, you judge according to the flesh. And I just like, don't let that be you. Like, I don't want that to be me. And so Jesus, like you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And I take that to mean not that he does not judge. I take it to mean I don't assess that way. The father and I have the same vantage point. The father and I have the same point of view. The father and I have the same perspective. And I say what the father says. And so there is two witnesses to what I have to say. And then this section closes out. The section closes out and he talks about they were they were in the treasury and this was in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. We talked about this last week. So twice in chapter seven, like no one arrested him. No one touched him once in chapter seven because his hour had not yet come. And now here it comes again. No one touched him for his hour had not yet come. Like the cross was not a surprise to God. It wasn't things getting out of control for Jesus and the, and, and the, the, the mob mentality taking over the scene and pushing him into the cross. Acts chapter two says you delivered him up. According to the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God. You think you delivered Jesus to be crucified. You didn't touch him one second before God ordained you touching him. This was the defined plan and the foreknowledge of God that led to the exact moment of the cross, the exact second of the cross. And there isn't a a hair on Jesus' head that you could have possibly even touched until God said it was time to touch it. And so no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. He is this true witness. Secondly, he is the Messiah, and we either believe or are condemned. He is the Messiah, and we either believe or are condemned. Like, I don't get this in my favorite topic. I'll tell you that. Like, I don't sit there thinking, man, I am so excited to get to talk about this. This is great. I won't shy away from talking about it either. If it's in the text, it's in the text. But there's a heaven. There is a heaven that for those who believe in Jesus gain and it is not sitting on a cloud with a harp. Like that's not the reward of heaven. That's why. Right. There's a heaven and it's not just forever peace. That's great. That's amazing But that's not the point. There's a heaven and it's not no more tears and crying and mourning and sorrow and disease. That's great. That's not the point. Do you know what the point of heaven is? You get God forever. Do you know what the reward of heaven is? It's God, not peace. It's the blazing face of Jesus lighting eternity for you. It is not easy circumstances without any more death. You get God. You get Jesus. That's the reward. But it's also only half the story. There's a hell. There is a hell. And it should break our heart to think that it's real because it is. And it should break our hearts that there are people we love dearly barreling towards it. There are people we work with. There's people we go to school with. There are people we love. There are people in our family. And they are headed there. And I wish we could say it wasn't so. And I wish we could say, well, they'll just go to sleep. It'll be fine. But it's not. And that's not what Jesus says in this text. He says, there is a hell. And apart from him, you'll die in your sins, guilty and condemned to that place. And so Jesus in this text says there is one great dividing line between humanity. And it is not the family you grew up in. There is one great dividing line in the family and it is not The geographic region that you were born into and grew up in, there's a dividing line to humanity and it is not your church attendance and it is not your Sunday school attendance. It is not your giving and it is not your religious service. There is a dividing line to humanity that has nothing to do with R or D behind a name. There is a dividing line to humanity and Jesus gives it to us in this text. Himself. What you do with Jesus is determines eternity and there's no way around it. There's no way around it. Let's look at it in the text as we go there. So he said to them again, again, right? Verse 12, again, verse 21, again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins and where I'm going, you cannot come. Do you see that? That's not Chris's words. That's that's Jesus's words. So he did this in chapter seven. I'm going away where I'm going. You can't come. And that was more of a general sense that we talked about. And so, like, as his people, we don't get to go there yet. John 14. He's like, yeah, but I'm coming for you. Don't worry. But in chapter eight, he is very pointedly. Uh, pointing at not his people anymore, but the people who are his opponents, the people who reject him. And it's to that group of people. He adds this statement that wasn't there in chapter seven. I am going away. You will seek me. You will die in your sins. So what does it mean that you will seek him? I think what it means is not like they're going to go looking for Jesus when he's gone. They would love for him to just disappear. So if Jesus disappeared right here, they'd be like, this is great. Back to life as usual. I think what he's saying is you're going to keep looking for a Messiah to rescue you. You're going to keep looking for a savior. But no, none will come. He's here and you will either embrace me as Messiah, the one who is here, or you will miss forever Messiah and his salvation because there's not another one coming. You'll seek me. You'll seek a Messiah. And you will die in your sins and where I'm going. You can't come. I'm going back to the father. I'm going back to glory. I'm going back to heaven in the presence of God at the right hand of God. And that is a place that will not ever be occupied by people who don't believe in me. Do You see that as we keep going, they're like, where is he going to go? Is he going to kill himself? And then he said to them, no, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. And so I told you, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. I right, so see. See, I does that. He's like you are you have an earthly origin. You're earthly people who see earthly things and you value earthly things and you live for earthly things and your appetites are for earthly things. And that's not me. I'm from heaven and my appetites are heavenly and my desires are heavenly. And I want to give you heavenly appetite and I would give you heavenly desires and so the great dividing line is there are earthly people who are confined to earth and their tastes are this earth and their appetites of this are of this earth. I think this is a warning for us. I don't care what you say you believe about Jesus. The demons believe and tremble. I don't care. Like Yeah, I'm Christian. Yeah, I'm Jesus. Yeah, I've got the label. I think what he's saying here, if your appetites remain predominantly earthly. We don't call it saving faith. If your appetites and your desires are all for earthly things and fame and fitting in and popularity and money and stuff and accumulating wealth and gaining security and having health at all expenses and all costs, if that is your frame of reference, it's the opposite of Jesus's. And so don't be like, I'm a Christian. But gorge your appetites on the world and think that there's not a disconnect between the two. Because there is, I'm, you're, you're earthly and I'm heavenly. You're from this world. You, you, you value the dust. I'm not from this world. That's not my value system. And so how would I put it? Right, he's like, well, no, let's go here. He says, so, so I'm telling you, you will die in your sins. I'm telling you, you will die in your sins, Feel the weight of that. I'm telling you, you will die guilty. I'm telling you, you will die condemned. Jesus, not Chris. I'm telling you. Your friends. Will die guilty and condemned. I'm telling you, the people you love will die condemned and guilty. I'm telling you. The people you work with will die condemned and guilty. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? If not, God help us. But if you do, then the relief of the second half of this verse is astounding. Unless. Unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe I'm the Messiah. Unless you believe I'm the light of the world that will shine, shine salvation to the ends of the earth. Unless you believe that I am Yahweh. Unless you believe that you'll die in your sins. But if you believe that. You will die Innocent. If you believe that you will die purified, if you believe that you will be connected to the father eternally, if you believe that he will adopt you as his child, if you believe that he will declare you righteous through the righteousness of Jesus. If you believe that you'll be forever loved, that nothing could separate you from the love of God. Right. If you believe that. And so the great dividing line of humanity in this text is you cannot believe. And die in your sins or you can believe And how would I define belief? A treasuring, life-shaping faith in Jesus. A treasuring, life-shaping faith in Jesus. Is that what you have? I'm not saying perfectly. But I'm saying that you've seen your appetites change. You've you've seen a greater value in Jesus, an increasing value in Jesus. You've seen that your life has begun to reorient from the earth to the person of Jesus. A treasuring, life-shaping faith. Do you have that? I'm not asking, have you been promoted from children's ministry to youth ministry to college ministry to an adult Sunday school class? Like there's no salvation in in, in church promotions. Right. I'm not saying, you know, did you grow up in church? I'm not saying, do you do some good things? I'm not saying, are you a nice person? I'm saying, have you put a treasuring, life-shaping faith in Jesus Christ and only jesus christ for your salvation because in the words of jesus himself if not if not you'll die in your sins i'll give you the fill in the blanks for the last one and we'll move from there he is the savior who will be exalted and revealed by the cross the way john refers to the cross is if i be lifted up And so it is dual meaning is physically to, to die on the cross. You are lifted off of the ground into the air to die. But it means far more than that. If I am exalted, I'll be known by the cross. The cross will exalt me above mankind. The cross will exalt me as the savior of the world. The cross will exalt me and all who desire to know me will know me by the cross. Because I'm lifted up. I'm exalted by it few practical things as we as we wrap up here first believe in Jesus I if you've known me a long time like you know that I don't try to scare people into heaven like I don't do the high pressure sales pitch this is what's in the text if you do not believe in me you will die in your sins and you'll spend eternity guilty and condemned unless you believe unless you see your sin and its separation from God Unless you see your guilt, and then unless you see Jesus, the one who took your guilt on himself on the cross and died for your sins on the cross and was buried, having paid the debt of your sin and rose again. Unless you've turned, unless you've repented, unless you've believed, you'll die in your sins. But if you repent and believe, I'll welcome you. I'll save you. I will put the saving light upon you and you'll never walk in darkness again. Not complete darkness again. Second, follow near, follow Jesus intimately. Like, I hope it's not a game to you. I hope it's not, yeah, Jesus is great, but he's like number eight on the priority list. I hope Jesus is your supreme treasure and that he orients everything else. And if not, I would just beg you to reorient your life. I beg you to like open up the word and say, where's Jesus? And what does it tell me about the Father? I beg you to pray and say, God, I've got to know you. I don't want to know religion. I want to know you. You know, you spend time in community and yes, you can talk about football and yes, the Atlanta United game on is it is on it, too. So, you know, I'm getting you out of here in the next two hours or so. But that you've not neglected to build in your life people who also talk about spiritual things with you and challenge you spiritually. I was talking to to somebody a few days ago and I was like, you know, one of the things as we talk about micro groups that we want for everybody is if you stop and think about this, is there any other person in this room? who knows truly how your spiritual life is today. Because you can sit in your small groups and, oh, I sinned and failed. You can sit in your small groups and tell facts and figures about the Bible all day long. And I can do it with the best of them. i memorize memorized a decent amount. But that doesn't tell you the spiritual temperature of my soul, does it? Does anybody know the spiritual temperature of your soul? If you're not in, a, in an intimate relationship with other people where they ask and probe and look and just know. Like, is there any warmth? Is there any intimacy? If there is, is there any running after Jesus? Or are you just doing the Bible fact game with me? Is there anybody that knows that? Like, we should have people that know that. We should have people that, like, I, need, I see it getting cool. Let me just fan those flames a little bit because the flames are cooling off. Let me challenge a little bit. Let me encourage a little bit. Let me speak truth into this a little bit. That's so why we micro groups or whatever we call them, that's why we want to see them happen because of this follow Jesus intimately. You can't do that by yourself. You can play the church game by yourself. But eventually the embers will cool if it's by itself. Follow Jesus intimately and then serve and share Jesus with others. Like for years we've said, who are you to? Who are you sacrificing for? Who are you serving? Who are you sharing dinners and, or sharing your table with? Who are you welcoming that's far from God to get closer to God? Who are you sharing the truths of Jesus with? And we said, like, there's a huge lost world out there you can do. You know, you're just paralyzed. I can't do anything about them. And so we've encouraged you to narrow the lost world down to two people. Have you done that? Let me just repeat the words of Jesus. I told you that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you to? Who are you to? Jesus is the light of of the world that has washed you with salvation, has offered to wash the world with salvation. And you can have light if you'll follow him. Let's pray. So, Father. This is weighty. And we bow under it, not because it's a truth we rejoice in, but because it's a truth that sobers us. It's a truth that is sombering, God, to feel the burden that eternity truly is at stake, to feel the burden. That all of those without Christ will spend eternity dead in their sins. And we don't desire that. And so, Father, I pray that you would relight the fire in my own heart and relight the fire in my brothers and sisters' hearts that burns for Jesus, to know Jesus, to be near to Jesus. And that you would toss on us the weight. The weight of people who are far from you and dead in their sins. God, would you help us to feel that weight? Not as a weight of guilt and condemnation, but as a weight that propels us, that, that forces us to do something, say something, plead with you. Father, would you do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.